Broadcasting live from the Great Northern Hotel in beautiful Twin Peaks, Washington, I'm Matt. I'm Caroline, and this is an episode-by-episode breakdown and discussion of all three seasons of Twin Peaks. We've been receiving copies of Deep Space Satellite data on our servers, and while we here at the Great Northern find it quite intriguing, it's unfortunately overwritten much of our guest booking information. If the military technician in charge of these satellites could adjust them just slightly, that would be a huge help. Today, we'll be talking about Season 2, Episode 2, Coma. Uh, This episode is directed by David Lynch and written by Harley Payton, who has uh, worked on previous episodes in season one. The episode opens with Cooper and Albert sitting in the Great Northern Dining Room having breakfast while Cooper explains the migration of Buddhism to Tibet, and a barbershop quartet seems to sing quietly behind them. Uh, Albert is unimpressed and informs Coop that Ronette has awoken from her coma but is not talking. Doesn't Coop tell Albert that? Whoops. I think, I think it was well. the other way around. Albert's talking about the um, autopsy on Jacques Renault. Yes, which turns up very little, it seems. Yeah, he makes a joke about the contents of Jacques' stomach, just like lists of un- like a license plate and a goat. I'm not really sure what prompts this joke. It just Well, seems... he says he's one of the happy generation. Yeah. Uh, he's just trolling Coop. Yeah, it's a very weird... Uh, very weird joke, but as I mentioned while we were watching this, I like Albert much more when he's just kind of being a, a snarky smartass with Coop um, and not being super mean to Harry and Andy and everybody else in Twin Peaks. Like, even when he's making sort of disparaging comments about Twin Peaks, it comes off much better when he's just talking to Coop. I find it much less abrasive and... It feels more like banter, and it's just much less unpleasant. Especially because I think there was so much of him clashing with the people in the police station from Twin Peaks in the previous episodes that even though you want to like that character because he's funny, the show really beats you over the head with like, no, he's such a jerk, and everyone's got to have their moment where they stand up to him. So, yeah, it's nice having him not do that. Yeah. The one th- what he does reveal, my mistake, is that Cooper's old partner, Wyndham Earl, or Wyndham Earl, for those of us who aren't going to do it in a German accent, is uh, is back. He's escaped from the mental institution. I gather this is what happened. He escaped from the mental institution that he was previously in. Yeah. But Cooper seems surprised sort of both by his escape and... The fact that he was in the mental institute... I don't know, it doesn't seem like Cooper is at all aware of what has happened with his former partner, even though the scene leads us to believe this is yeah an ominous like pronouncement. So I wasn't... Yeah, I was a little confused by that as well. I wasn't sure if maybe Coop was just surprised. Because, yeah, it, it comes off like Coop doesn't, didn't know that he was in a mental institution, but mm-hmm. maybe he was just kind of surprised by the way Albert said it. He was very, like... I don't know. I wasn't sure. Well, it, he says, like, Wyndham Earl's retired. And then Albert says, yeah, retired to a m- mental institution. And then escaped. And Coop seems perplexed by all of it. So, I don't yeah, know. I don't Odd know. scene. Yeah. I was also perplexed by all of it. This well, this is an ominous pronouncement to me. Because the fact <laughs> that Wyndham Earl has has made his presence known so early on is... Uh, it doesn't bode well for my enjoyment going forward. Yep. Uh, yep. But I will say that this episode, I didn't super like the first viewing. 
but on the notes, the notes rewatch, it was more palatable. And I think it was just, I think it was the mention of Earl's name immediately just <laughs> soured me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I felt that way. I was like, oh, right. It just reminded me how bad season two gets. Yeah. Run from it. Dread it. I don't know. Thanos quote here. It arrives. Windermere arrives. Sorry, I don't know those movies well enough to actually quote them. I don't either. I guess, yeah, you still haven't seen Infinity War. Yeah, no. I'm not going to review those movies as the middle segment. They have enough money as it is. Yeah, I don't intend to see them anyway. So the only thing that happens in the rest of this scene really is that we pan over to the mysterious man from Hong Kong uh, watching from a nearby table. Like, looking the most conspicuous as he tries to look inconspicuous by reading a newspaper super conspicuously. Um, Yep, it's, uh, yeah. uh, Donna does her rounds for Meals on Wheels, and her first stop, it seems like, is to deliver a platter to the Tremont house. Uh, These are characters we have not seen yet. They are... A very old woman and a... Child that looks like a baby David Lynch. <laughs> I mean, it it is like it is baby David Lynch. Yeah. Is it his son or his grandson? It's his grandson, correct? Mm. Or is it like his nephew? Oh, see, we talk about this season where the professionals, but I have completely forgotten to look up the production notes. So, uh, well, either way, it's some relative of David Lynch, and you can tell because he is a spitting <laughs> image and also quite odd. So, yep. <laughs> <laughs> But the uh, the decrepit Mrs. Tremond makes a fuss over the appearance of creamed corn on her plate before Baby Lynch sort of disappears it. Into his, like, cupped hands, and then he holds it for a second. Yeah. Tremond explains this as uh, her grandson practicing magic. But Donna, despite keeping a calm demeanor, seems to be put off by this. And it's another one of those uh, sort of the surreality has leaked into reality in this season. Yeah. So Tremond is uh, just cagey about Laura and tells Donna that perhaps she should talk to Mr. Smith next door, a, a recluse who apparently was friends with Laura. Yeah, so then Donna goes over to the house next door um, and knocks or rings the doorbell. I can't remember. There's no answer. So she leaves a note. Um, and then as she's walking away, somebody's like looking through the blinds and she kind of looks back like she's noticed that somebody is watching her but then she just kind of continues walking away yeah. uh, cooper and truman arrive to visit ronette in the hospital calhoun memorial hospital I, i've this season has done a much better job to me of making me remember certain locations that aren't the super iconic ones yeah like i don't know why but like when i saw calhoun memorial hospital i could hear one of the characters saying it in my head, and I was like, oh, like, I, who would have thought of that as being, like, an important Twin Peaks location? But a ton of the show freaking takes place there. Yeah, no, that's that's very true. There's also, I think, a better job of, like, reminding us that there are other people in Twin Peaks. Like, the hospital is much busier, partially because, as we, I think, talked about in the last episode, like, currently everybody is in the hospital. Um, <laughs> like, 90, 95% of the characters yeah, they also give us an exterior shot of the hospital, which, like, in daytime, I feel like we don't get that. We don't get a whole lot of exterior location shots during the day, except for 
basically the police station, the Palmer House, and the Great Northern. Yeah. Like, I would love to see... I don't... Do we ever get an exterior shot of One-Eyed Jacks during the day? I don't think so. I don't know why we would. Yeah, I can't remember. Um, so they, they screw around with the chairs. There's an extended sequence of them... <laughs> I love ...trying this. to... Yeah, I, like... <laughs> it's so funny. Like, I, they just, like, the, the stools are, like, lifted all the way up, and they are like coops trying to lower it so that he can sit in it because he can't really like hoist himself up because he's recently been shot and yeah there's just this extended scene of like harry in this very like hushed tone so that they don't disturb ronette like reading like looking underneath the chair and like reading the operating instructions and explaining how to how to lower the seat (laughs) i didn't i didn't connect it to coop being hurt but that makes sense Oh, I just assumed, yeah. No, I, I like that. That's a good kayfabe explanation. No, it was so funny because, like, I don't know. This is a weird thing where I, I read it a little, like, it was a little iffy to me of, like, are we a little bit making fun of people in comas here? Or, like, sort of people in, in I don't know. It was slightly uncomfortable because it was played comedic. But it's also I think... a real thing. Like, those are sort of heavy-duty medical stools, so... I guess it would make sense. Um, it was funny. Yeah, I thought it goes they were on just for making fun of how complicated it can be to figure out how to lower chairs like that. Well, so they, Ronette is not speaking, but she is, seems to be fully awake. I think Coop offers just, yeah, shock as, as the explanation. So I don't, I don't think it's, like, suggested that it's brain damage. Maybe. No, um, I think he, he does say that it's just shock, and she seems to be, like, aware. She's responsive, yeah. yeah. So she shows her sketches of Leo and then Bob. I'm not sure why a sketch of Leo, since, like, pictures exist of him, and, like, yeah, only one of these two people is a, like, dream demon. Uh, the other just, like, lives down the street uh, and is currently in the next room over um, yeah and but... has been arrested before and so there's probably photos of him on file <laughs> yeah or just in flesh world um, so well when they show no reaction to leo it seems like but when they show rana the the sketch of bob she spasms out has like a sort of like an epileptic some kind of seizure moment and tries to tries to sort of say something uh but uh, is unable to communicate particularly effectively before the nurse uh, like subdues her. Yeah, yeah. It seems it seems like she's saying "train" or trying to say it. I think is what what Coop or Harry yeah. like picks out of of what she's trying to say. But that's that's about it. It's the only yeah. thing she manages to even sort of get out is that word. So yeah, she gets sort of like a, a, a tr syllable. Um, ben and Jerry are sitting around discussing which of their ledgers to burn, the fake one or the real one, to sort of complete their scheme. And Jerry eats a smike, a smike, a smike, a smike, I want, I want sort of, uh, <laughs> I went British with it, a smoke cheese pig. So I actually really like this conversation because even though Ben Horn and the Mill subplot really kind of deteriorate into nothing, this is pretty smart because they're talking about, on the one hand, the fake ledger, 
would bring them more money if they used that one and they burned the real. But the real one would hold up better under court scrutiny, which it probably will have to, given the scenario they're in. Right. If they burn the fake one. And it so. it makes... Right, like, doesn't... Isn't there something, too, about how it, it makes it look like... It it shows, like, Catherine's involvement or, or suggests oh, okay. her involvement in the plot to burn the mill. And so then she takes the fall for that instead of Ben and Josie. Oh, okay, okay. So, well, then the issue arrives that I think just Pete has not signed the policy correct Catherine didn't sign the life insurance policy so josie doesn't get that money um okay and that was that was at the end of last season there was right right right. i remember that um and then pete has to sign off on the sale of the mill is the other issue so andrew packard's will i think said that Catherine or Catherine's heirs which is just pete like that they like whoever takes over her estate has to sign off on the sale of the mill so they have to get pete to sign off before they can they can't just buy it from josie straight like straight up okay i i tried to pay extra attention to the legal stuff specifically to avoid the situation we had last time where you had to explain it to me but here we are again that's (laughs) fine that can just be my role in the show (laughs) you seem to have a very good grasp of the legal ramifications of this whole ghost with estate scheme so um uh, well they don't come to a conclusion about which ledger they are going to burn and since ben declares they must burn something and it will not be the ledgers nor the smoked cheese pig they decide to roast marshmallows instead (laughs) they're both very excited about this it's so absurd i love it this isn't a character trait we've seen before correct there's no the marshmallows. There's no previous reference to marshmallows and hickory sticks. No, but I mean in the horn repertoire. No, I mean this is very on brand for Jerry, though. It is a this little is unusual for Ben, but considering he was stress eating a gallon of ice cream in one of the previous episodes, I guess it's not that out of character. That's true. Well, I do like that, even though they're both conniving old, like scumbags when they're together they're like an 11 year old brother and a nine-year-old brother like playing in a in a blanket fort like they you know what i mean like yeah we're now at the double r and andy while taping up the uh, sort of wanted wanted sketches of bob seems incapable of properly managing tape. he's really bad at tape it's really not not good no, it's that's an odd. It's just a dumb bit of slapstick. It goes on for far too long, but the log lady strolls in and sit next sits next to Major Briggs at the counter, and is admonished by Norma for her gum spitting on the seats from the previous episode. Uh, the log lady is unimpressed with her chiding, and orders a bear claw. Yeah, well, so she she tells Briggs that her log has a message for him. She asks if if he knows the log, and he says that they, he doesn't believe they've been introduced. Um, I love this scene because I love like the like Briggs is taking her very seriously here. Like he's mm-hmm. 
with everybody else, you can kind of tell that it's like, okay, you know, they're just sort of going along with it to hear, you know, in that scene from season one where um, Cooper and Truman have to hear what her log has to say. You know, they're just sort of going along with it so that she tells them the information that she has. Um, but yeah, no, like Briggs is very, like it, it doesn't come off as um, like that he's kind of in, indulging in her mm-hmm. log stuff. Like he's just like, oh no, I, I haven't been introduced to the log. Um, so yeah, so she translates um, and it's the log lady tells Briggs that the message from the log is deliver the message. Which you would think would be confusing, as I was confused. But Briggs actually knows what it means. Right. He says. Right, she asks if he knows what it means, and he, he says, as a matter of fact, I do. A friend who was watching this, uh, just like the housemate who happened into see part of the episode, commented that it's nice seeing sort of a hard-ass military dad figure who's portrayed as like actually very understanding and like patient and quite competent. And actually, like, and buying into the the weird stuff rather than being the the sort of bald faced denier uh, of all of it. But yeah, yeah, Briggs's character is is not what you would expect his character to be. Just overall, the Briggs are not what they seem. Hmm. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. So then we go back to the police station. There's a really just too much time spent on this fly buzzing around Lucy and she seems to be kind of trying to I don't know if she's trying to to locate it to swat it or whatever but yeah she's just being kind of harassed by this fly and this goes on for a bit yeah I will David Lynch master of uh, sound mixing and sound design I will say did not pick the best stock fly <laughs> Uh, like buzzing sound because ugh, this sucks. <laughs> um, yeah, but then Andy, Andy comes in. He still has a piece of tape on his forehead. Yeah, just kind of more like I don't mind the some of the sort of slapsticky parts of Twin Peaks. I don't particularly enjoy them. I don't mind them. If I hate that that's, like, all they do. It seems like that's all they do with Andy's character. Like, he's just a vessel for these, like, dumb slapstick moments. Yep, <laughs> this this one's too much. The tape thing annoyed me, and then this is just... Uh, it's a lot. Especially his dialogue later, because he says... He tells Lucy... He's there to tell Lucy that he went to a sperm bank, was told he was sterile, which he thought meant he didn't have to bathe. But it, now that he knows the truth, he is confused as to why she's how she got pregnant. And yeah, it's just sort of like, really, Andy? Like, why? You know, if you don't know what that means, why? How did you get this job? Yeah. That is actually a great question. How? I'm sorry. How is Andy working at the sheriff's department? No, we've been over this. He's a really good sketch artist. Right, okay, right, right. Uh, how is Lucy working there? I guess she's pretty, like... Lucy's very competent. You're right. Her attention to detail and her her work ethic is... Uh, yeah. It's not necessarily belied by her, her outward personality, so you're right. Yeah. Well, so when he... Uh, I don't know, he just he's questioning her about how she got pregnant and then leans in to try and kiss her. 
at the same time, but she just rips off tape, the tape off his head and closes her, like, counter window. Yeah. So, more, uh, more of this. Uh, <laughs> well, I was thinking that if we're going to keep this interesting as we move towards the half of the season that we have openly talked about disliking and not being excited for, I think we have to pivot to sort of like a bad bad movie, bad TV kind of roasting podcast for the last half or so. Yeah, up until up until the last the very last two episodes. Yeah, we're just gonna be deeply miserable. Yeah, and so are our listeners. So um Hank arrives at Truman's office, or he's already in Truman's office when Truman and Coop get there, despite probably Truman notes being told by Lucy to wait outside. And Hank's sort of sort of a dick to Truman when he's, I guess, there to sign a parole log or or a ledger or something to check in. I'm not really sure if that's this seemed very real procedure. Well, it just it seemed. I mean, it's for like obviously it's because it's a TV show and it doesn't matter, but. Yeah, this seemed, like, very quick. <laughs> I thought they go there, too. I thought the pro officer goes to you, but... I have no idea, but... Maybe sometimes, maybe sometimes they have to check in. Yeah. I don't know. It just seemed uh, like Hank should I've... have had to pee in a cup. Right. Well, the reason this scene exists is for exposition, which is that after Hank leaves, uh, Truman remarks that they used to be friends, and in fact, Hank was a bookhouse boy. Yeah. So... You get that sort of uh, could have been interesting emerging but dynamic. But they do nothing with that going forward, so it's just expository yeah. dialogue. But it does explain why why Truman has also consistently been like kind of a dick to Hank because we I think we remarked on that even once before, um, and I know I brought it up while we were watching the episode that even if Hank is kind of flippant, Truman seems really like. Mm. It, it seems like he has a very personal dislike of Hank, which we get expository dialogue here to explain. So, At this point, Ben Horn phones in to report that Audrey is missing. And while Ben, on his end of the line, doesn't actually seem to be all that worked up about it, he says it's been about two days, Cooper does seem to be stunned before we uh, cut to commercial. Yeah. Uh, Leland strolls in as they phone up Iceland. Yes, Ben. To tell them to. Ben and and Jerry. Yes, sorry. The ice cream men. (laughs) Uh, But he calls them, uh, he calls the Icelanders pickled pickled ice men. Uh, But so he's calling to do damage control. Leland arrives to advise them to do damage control. Although once this damage control is in in, in full swing, it, it appears that Leland was the one that told them about the mill fire. Uh, the mill fire, which is sort of what they're trying to. How do you pronounce that word? Assuage, assage, assuage. You know what I'm talking about. I can spell it for you. <laughs> they're calling to assuage their fears about this uh, this recent mill tragedy. But it seems that Leland was the one that planted these fears. In the first place, and while Ben and Jerry are trying to admonish him for that, Leland spots a police sketch of Bob, uh, the one that they've been distributing that Andy was posting up, and says he recognizes him. He 
I mean, very generally seems like affected and and like startled that this is a person he recognizes as a man from his childhood who lived next door to their summer home. So he runs off to tell the police about this, much to the chagrin of the Horn brothers. Yeah. Ben Ben very deadpan says, uh, Jerry, will you, will you please kill Leland? <laughs> and then Jerry, always on that good shit, says, Ben, is this real or just some twisted dream? Yeah, And in uh, case you had forgotten that right. this was a Lynch-directed show. <laughs> like, I, I'm, I know that people do occasionally, like, people say the word dream in, like, normal conversation, but every time it happens in a David Lynch, like, movie or in Twin Peaks, I'm just like, it just seems like the most, like, contrived and obvious thing in the world, and I'm just like, can we not? <laughs> yeah. Like, we get it, David. Uh, Your stuff is about dreams and reality. <laughs> We all we all saw the Monica Bellucci scene that happens twenty five years later. <laughs> Come on, uh. that one's that's the, that's actually the, the one of the best scenes in the whole new season, though. To be fair, yeah, that's that's the good that's the good bit. Well, further confusing our understanding of Doctor Hayward's profession, <laughs> we now are treated to him explaining to Shelley the state of of Leo's being following a shooting, which is that. Due to blood loss and uh, I think where the bullet lodged in his spine, he is in a coma. Yeah, potentially not paralyzed. Potentially paralyzed, potentially vegetative. They're not sure. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess he's now also their resident neurosurgeon. Well, like, I mean, what? he would just be a like just a surgeon, right? Like, I yeah, guess he, he wouldn't need to necessarily... I don't know what the what his specialization would be, but if he's working, you know, if he's if he was the doctor that operated on Leo to get the bullet out, that, that's, that's just true. I think would yeah. be sort of a general surgeon position. All right. Well, you know why there's so many people in the Twin Peaks hospital? It's because there's one goddamn doctor, <laughs> and he's overworked as hell. So people are just stuck there. It's like court cases. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I was, for a while this was, like, a fun thing that I made jokes about, you know, but I, like, now I just feel bad, like, poor Doc yeah, Hayward needs a, he needs a vacation. You need to hire yeah. a second doctor. Well, so, they walk out of the room, Hayward and Shelley, and we get a dramatic zoom on Leo's comatose face. He doesn't, I thought that, like, he would shift or like open his eyes but his eyes kind of like they they move a little bit his eyelids kind of i guess twitch. slightly that's about it it's supposed to be a suspense thing it's super lame <laughs> i'm calling it like it is i'm i'm unleashed i'm <laughs> yeah you're normally so restrained about criticizing television shows hey you know what something's got to make me feel good at night someone calls up the police station and lucy answers but this caller refuses to give their name, so Lucy is just forced to hang up. This is uh, just, I don't know, this scene sort of plunked right in the middle of things. Yeah, it's, I mean, there have been... Do we know who this is? No. Didn't think so. Yeah, and so there, I mean, there have been some, there are a lot of characters that we don't know, like, 
what what their role is or what they're doing kind of at the moment like mysterious hong kong man like windham earl's been mentioned we also don't really know like you know all of like like hank and josie yeah josie even bobby like they're all kind of loose cannons right now so it's like we don't know this could be kind of about anything so not a particularly complicated scene but i think it works it it made me intrigued i was like oh something has happened i i agree i agree audrey interrupts emory battis's kinky vacuum bondage (laughs) session yeah i i didn't need to know that emory battis had such specific kinks i could have gone through life without knowing that yeah he's like tied up kind of upside down in a chair his toenails are painted um he has the little like toe divider things that you get when you're getting a pedicure um he's blindfolded somebody's vacuuming and there was another girl from one eye jacks who was about to take in some ice and then audrey comes in and says that she'll take the ice in so i yeah badass badass asks uh, frosty is that my little snowman before so the ice is uh... also related yeah oh certainly certainly <laughs> But as he as he feels a quote cold front coming on, uh, Audrey strangles him, not in a kinky way. I mean, it could be it's Audrey, but basically to get him to spill his guts about his knowledge of One Eye Jacks and Ben Horn's involvement in it. And it turns out that he ran Laura and Ronette through the perfume counter to One Eye Jacks. But that Laura only spent one weekend there because she was thrown out for using drugs. But it seems like she was both aware that Ben Horn ran the place and Ben Horn was aware that she was there. Yeah. But he doesn't know anything else, he says. Yeah. Um, we go back to Bobby and Shelly. And Bobby is saying that if Leo stays at home, then Shelly gets the disability money, which is like 5000 a month. Um, and I don't know if that's like, I guess probably through, that's like probably his, like through his work that he gets that. And he tells Shelly that the police can't force her to testify against him, against Leo, because she's his wife. Which is true, but I was a little surprised that like, they don't, like they have enough evidence against Leo at this point. I mean, I don't know why, like they don't really need to arrest him if he's a vegetable but like it's not like shelly's statement is like the nail in his coffin like legally they have a ton of other evidence they don't have a ton of other witnesses because Jacques is dead Mm -hmm. but uh, just i I don't know i was surprised that that shelly's statement was so necessary to the police like i have enough to yeah this seems like they've uh seems like they perhaps cut some corners in the the writing department in order to push this into what ends up being the oh one of the worst subplots ever. Which is really so, saying something. Yeah. Yeah. This this scene is also one that strikes deep fear into my gut. I, I was watching. I was like, oh no, no. Yeah. And it's funny because it foreshadows it too. The idea is that Shelley has to keep Leo at home in order to collect these checks, and Bobby's like, yeah, that's fine. She's like, I don't really want to here and he's like oh just stick him in the corner hang donuts on his ears it'll be super easy you don't have to do anything just collect the money and of course you know going forward it doesn't play out like that but this like 
the scene even foresh- foreshadows like how an- how annoying and tedious yeah. the rest of it is. Well, and also like, hey, that's not like you can't just like having a completely vegetative person in your home that you have to like care for is not quite as easy as as Bobby seems to be making it out here. Like, yeah, but I be- I believe that Bobby is dumb enough. To think that that is how easy it is. Yeah, no, I know. It's just it just annoys me. And manipulative enough to convince Shelley of it at least. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really, I really hate Bobby in this scene. Like, I, I had come around to your your viewpoint of him being an, an asshole in a fun way for, for and for most of the show he is. But right here, I, uh, it's just that's. Yeesh. Don't, no, I, don't I like I him agree. in this, this scene. Makes... It is, yeah, it's very manipulative. Yeah, but you also know that he's being, like, there are previous times when he's, like, sort of lied to Shelly and, or not been completely straight with her. Yeah. But he he seems to be doing it for, at least in his mind, her good. Yeah. You know? Whereas this is just like, nope, I'm totally just sort of taking advantage of her. Yeah. Yeah, he just wants the money. Yeah. So, to close out the uh, the episode, more or less, we're winding down now. Uh, Cooper is in his pajamas telling Diane that he is worried and affected by Audrey's disappearance. Uh, I don't know. Thoughts? Eh. I mean, it's, yeah, it's weird to have Coop be like, I don't know, talking about the, what does he even say? Like, the... It's affected me more than I thought it would. Or yeah. But then he beyond professional boundaries. Yeah, but then he says something about like I find myself like thinking not about, and I don't remember what he says. And then he says like, but about the I don't know something about her smile. Her smile. Yeah, yeah. it's. I mean, yeah, it's weird, but it's not like given given all of their previous interactions. It's not like I'm not surprised by it. It doesn't seem. We've talked about this before, but like the whole Audrey. Like, the whole, the, the sexual tension with Audrey, between Audrey and Coop, is, <clears throat> like, comes across as a little out of character for Coop on the whole. But, I mean, this particular instance is not out of character in the context of that sexual tension. I mean, mm. I think even after he's, you know, even after she shows up naked in his room and he, you know, <laughs> s- sets some very clear boundaries, I guess. <laughs> You know, I mean, yeah, like it's not it was the there are previous interactions, and again, we've talked about this in those scenes. It's not like a one sided like, even though he kind of in uh, in a second sort of admonishes her for the sort of like immature schoolgirl attitude. Um, like their interactions are not just her having a crush and flirting. Like he's flirting back in most of them, so it's a weird, but. Whatever, that's where we've gone with this. <laughs> yeah, I think I just I just heard Leo's truck uh, roar by you. <laughs> so when he, uh, yeah, no, I I don't think it's out of character, and I I suppose that his sort of boundary setting beforehand makes this somewhat less bad. But... Yeah, he's. I mean, yeah, he's. It makes it a little bit more tolerable because you know that he's not gonna act on it act on his feelings yeah well briggs arrives to cut his uh salacious fantasy short 
to show him a readout from deep space satellites that he monitors as part of his his top secret job with the military. And he says that most of the time the... I'm not sure if it's like radio waves or, or radiation or what exactly the sort of yeah I think satellites he says are supposed to be radio, beaming back radio waves okay radio waves well I guess they uh, they decode them as much as they can into sort of jar- garbled garbled gibberish God j- jar- jarbled gibberish um, sure but that you really are having a hard time with the word garbled yeah it's these G's um, so so anyway. This, <laughs> this jarble gibberish um apparently the message which he seems to be delivering at this point was the only sort of words that have ever come across from these readouts yeah the first one from earlier that morning or the morning before yeah fr- friday night saturday uh, morning i think he says no no, no thursday, thursday night, night friday, friday morning. morning um which um, would have been when cooper was shot um, which yeah, he which says. He, he notes. It first reads, the owls are not what they seem, which is the message the giant gave to him at that point in time. And when Coop asks why Briggs knew to deliver the message to him, he flips the readout around and shows him that later the words Cooper, 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 repeating three or four times uh, appeared. Yeah. And Coop is shocked there's a lot of cooper going (gasps) this episode (laughs) (laughs) with like a with like a single piano beat of like over it (laughs) david lynch master of sound design I can't believe this one was directed by him. Ugh. This one did not anyway. seem like a very... Yeah, no, I was surprised by that also, actually. Because about halfway through the episode, I was like, I knew it wasn't... I, I could tell it wasn't a Mark Frost-written episode. Um, yeah. But I was like, yeah, at, at about about 35 minutes in, I was like, who directed this? And I looked, and I was like, really? <laughs> this was a Lynch yeah, episode? So if we seem... If we seem a little lazy today, it's only because David seemed quite lazy. Yeah, he phoned <laughs> that one in as well. <laughs> but uh, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't exactly get to see what the payoff of this this revelation uh, about this deep space satellites is because it cuts away to James sitting with Maddie and Donna in the Haywards. Is it the Haywards? Yeah. Or okay, in the Haywards house practicing their singing and guitar and harmonization they have nice like they have like some some uh high-end mics for just oh my god like casual i mean james's falsetto is amazing i'll be honest (laughs) and like the reverb effect that he got on that holy crap they're really good i mean i hate this scene So apparently I was looking this up because I was so curious. I actually like this song. Not like as something I would listen to, but for an original like an original song they have here. Yeah. And the the way they set it up of, of Donna and Maddie doing backing vocals and James doing this like very fifties falsetto thing. You know, it's it's got that slow fifties like lilt to it. Yeah. So no, I mean you know, it all. It, it feels very 
sort of warm and fuzzy, but it's just a reviled scene, apparently. Like, people hate this scene. Yeah. It's like, this is just, like, one of the, like, the big misstep scenes that people have. Yep. Uh, <laughs> but apparently it just happened because James Marshall, the guy that plays James Hurley, just, like, played guitar, and David Lynch, like, saw him and was like, hey, you want to, uh, want to play your guitar on one of the episodes? And he said, okay. And so they just sort of sketched out a song and did it. Interesting. But, yeah, people are not fans of this scene. I actually don't hate this scene. I, because it does, it's, it serves a very specific purpose, and it's that during the singing, Donna is sort of visually pining after James. She's staring at him as he's kind of enraptured in the music, and when he comes out of sort of being, just sort of singing to himself, he and Maddie appear to be singing to each other rather than him and Donna. And so Donna is kind of looking on more and more helplessly as sparks are flying between James and Maddie before she eventually just breaks, storms off, James follows her, and then she sort of spins around and decides that she's going to try and make out with him, uh, you know, to sort of pull a power move on Maddie, who then has to sit herself awkwardly while Donna and James sort of uh, fake passion at each other. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. No, I get why this, it's This there. is one of those scenes, like, it's a very, I think it's very well directed, even though it's quite ham-fisted. Yeah. Because it, it knows it is. No, uh, that's that's fair. It's more it's more self-aware than I probably give it credit for. It's just, I think it, my thing with it is just one of those scenes where it's very uncomfortable to watch. <laughs> but also the idea that, like, I, we've never seen them singing or playing music at all, or any indication that they're in a band or doing kind of performance. But James, like, specifically referred to it as, like, let's practice this next one. And that, to me, more than, like, Andy with tape or Cooper with chairs, that sort of just, like, why are they suddenly, like, a 50s, like, slow song band? That is so, like, weird, Twin Peaksy high school nonsense like where it's 90s meets 50s like that's that is really the kind of campy corniness i love out of it so it's hard for me to complain about this uh that's that's just me no i get it i mean uh it's not particularly i don't hate it as much as i hate some of the other scenes but i'm just not particularly enamored of this one that's fine uh it's interrupted by a call from harold smith mr smith the recluse who tells donna they can meet but meanwhile, Maddie hallucinates Bob walking through the house, stepping over the couch and and menacing her yeah. uh, before oh. Donna and James return next to her. And she's yeah, she's like kind of shaken. Yeah, she screams, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, I, oh, that scene is so creepy. Like that shot of Bob climbing over the couch. Oof. And finally... We see the giant waving in front of Cooper's face again, and we get a montage of, of flashback images and uh, voiceovers of the owls are not real. Uh, we see Cooper talking to the giant in the previous episode. We see uh, Sarah Palmer walking down the stairs, and we see Bob at one point with his face overlaid with an owl. So there's a little bit of stuff that happens here that I will talk about in spoilers, but that will be 
like in a minute because we're almost done yeah yeah so then uh cooper wakes up because he gets a phone call it's audrey he asks her where she is she unhelpfully asks why isn't why he isn't there and this is when he kind of admonishes her and says that this is you know like no time for schoolgirl games he asks if she's in trouble um at some point she says that she saw him in his tuxedo which will be relevant for him to figure out where she is <laughs> later he'll realize that she must have seen him at one eyed jacks and then yeah she says he asks if she's in trouble she says she is but she's going to come home um and then blackie and and em arrives and like hangs up the phone and then audrey's turns around and emery battis is there as well dun, dun, dun. And they, yeah they say something like you're in trouble or yeah, you don't Meddling know. Kids. You don't know what kind of trouble you're in. Yeah. yeah, and then yeah, cut to credits for our cliffhanger. I do love that Audrey didn't think that like Battis would tell anyone. <laughs> yeah. Like it was a thought I had to watch the episode of like this is pretty risky to just choke this dude out in the middle of the brothel you work for. Um, yep. But it uh, actually, to their credit, didn't work out for her at all. So. Yeah, I mean, I think this just sort of continues the the whole, kind of the whole point of the Audrey One-Eyed Jack subplot is just that she's, yeah, up to a point is very conniving and capable and, and you know, as she, as she says, she's Audrey Horn and she gets what she wants. But then, yeah, the whole, I mean, it just sort of reiterates the whole thing with Blackie that Audrey's kind of met her match and... Out of her depth. Yeah, very out of her depth. And that she and that she is just, you know, like she's an, a 17, 18 year old kid. She's a high school high school girl, you know, she doesn't she doesn't know what she's doing. She shouldn't be here. She is way out of her depth. So spoilers, really quick. There's actually not that much. No. But the final I hate that cream corn comes back. <laughs> yeah, well, comes first before i don't think it comes back right isn't this is this not the first cream corn no i mean i hate i hate that it is i, I when i i hate that it comes back later after this episode oh okay okay i hate that we have to watch Kyle McLaughlin vomit up a bunch of cream corn <laughs> i just hate it is perhaps one of the more <laughs> ill-advised major plot points that they have but like, i just that's one of those things where it's like as I was, we'll talk about this when we actually get to this episode, but I do have to say that, like, as I was watching that scene in season three, I was just like, man, we're all just going to let David Lynch do this, huh? <laughs> he just put well, this scene here and we're all just going to watch it. <laughs> so when, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to the episode is, like, basically the motto of this podcast. <laughs> but, so, yes, the Tremons are way more relevant than they seem to be here as is the cream corn and this is an interesting introduction of them because they seem to meet donna just sort of by happenstance but i suppose their connection to laura's root makes it all more or less coincidental than than it seems yeah but they are they are black lodge denizens yeah although then it then it becomes a question of why wouldn't she want the cream corn on her plate? But maybe it's like a thing where like real cream corn is just like a mockery to them, you know? It's like if someone's going through like this is gonna sound super bad, if someone's going through like heroin withdrawal 
and you just like throw them a little baggie of like baking soda like that's that's not gonna be very nice um you can't make jokes about heroin that gets people to make threats against you this is true (laughs) please 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 direct all threats of bodily harm to our to our email where we will uh address them post haste so the only the thing i wanted to just bring up was some of these shots in that final sort of surrealist montage that the giant seems to bring about although it's unclear if the giant is there again or if the first that itself is part of the dream sequence flashback because it seems to be the same shot yeah of the giant from before so it is perhaps that cooper is only dreaming this and it is not an official giant appearance that may actually be what they intended so but when they are flashing back in this dream to the previous meeting with the giant while the voiceover of the owls are not what they seem is playing both from the giant and major briggs the shot of that scene is turned black and white and given a a graininess like the shot of briggs there's not no the shot of the shot of cooper two shots of cooper are turned black and white and and made intentionally grainy Mm. so that so so and and at the same point you can then hear you can hear electricity in the background crackling yeah so this was like oh black and white like all the scenes in the white lodge and oh the electricity crackling like yeah and that seems like like that would be something that was a little like even if even if david lynch didn't intend to go into it in the original seasons the way that he ends up doing in season three or the return that that seems a little bit more i guess intended at the time like maybe Mm -hmm. that was more intended at the time of the episode whereas um stuff like the tremons feels a little bit like that seems like it's more likely something where they went back um when they're making the return and said okay like what what is already here that we can and how can we use that where this those scenes that you pointed out the black and white and the electricity crackling that's very specific to not Mm -hmm. have been intentional at the time that they made this episode yeah although the tree i believe the tremons are relevant in season two going forward right but i know what you i know what you mean about the intent i i had the same feeling that i think some of the stuff that we uh we kind of freaked out about last episode we had to step back and admit that like this was probably done in the opposite order like right it was we feel but they were like what they went back to the episode and 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 sort of looked at what does that episode set up whereas this feels like something that was meant at the time to be significant um even if it wasn't going to be as big of a deal and it just if it does feel i don't know the electricity thing the black and white was like oh this is interesting this is probably something they kind of borrowed but that uh the electricity I listened through is, it a couple times, and I heard the, that, the crackling, and I was like, oh. Yeah, that's and, and, very and, and, and specific. It's, and it's specifically when it transitions to those black and white, artificially grainy shots. Yeah. And it's like, ah, hmm. So, I don't know. Yeah, I could be talking on my ass, but that uh, hey. that one took a couple a couple viewings and was... Uh, anyway, that's really it. I mean, I think, you know, we've got a lot more... 
of this sort of like weird dream montage stuff that we're getting tossed this season yeah for sure we haven't had too much of it since the the man and the the man from another place and right. laura earlier on so so it's just fun sort of puzzling through a little bit more of what this means because he seems david lynch and mark ross seem to have both a better and worse grasp of sort of where these elements are going in the second season so and but but interesting it, I guess, what do you mean by that I don't know. I, just, I, I think things like the Tremonts and the cream corn, like it's, that is a bunch of gibberish to me. And I think like they, I think the relevance and the, the influence of the sort of more mythological aspects is much more pronounced and they have much more of a sense that it is meant to, it feels much more like it is meant to actually influence the story. Right. Right. rather than simply the aesthetics of it. Right. But on the other hand, there's also so much random stuff they throw in as part of it. Right, that it, yeah. yeah. It does very much. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, you know, I'm just sort of. No, I mean, I think, like, Twin Peaks as a whole feels very much like a show that kind of has to, you, you sort of have to reverse engineer the internal logic of the like, of the supernatural elements of it and of its kind of mythos based on, like, there's there's all of these, yeah, we're sort of thrown all of these elements and you kind of have to figure out, like, what the structure is that makes them all fit together. Um, and I think that that can, like, especially in the sort of Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks fans, ourselves included, can get, like, that can get to can get too into the weeds with that stuff, like, trying to piece together, like, mm-hmm. what every single detail needs and find a way that everything is all interconnected and not um, not making allowances for the things that were sort of just, like, David Lynch is, like, weird aesthetic decisions. But I think, and I think this is kind of what you're saying, that in a certain sense, the the show itself is kind of doing that, too, where we get all of these weird things that are thrown in there and then in order they they do seem clearly intended to influence the story but in order to make that happen then the show itself kind of has to go back and be like what is the the overall structure of this what is actually happening here well and i do feel like as it drags on drags whoops (laughs) wow as it goes on i just i do think that sort of especially the writers who are not Mark Frost or David Lynch having to try and work within this very hard to piece together mythos. Yeah. Or want to make it very literal in a sense that it maybe isn't. And so, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, we got a lot of shit like Wyndham Earl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I know what you mean. And I, yeah, I think that's, I think that's part of why it's like, I mean, some of it's just the, the subplots but yeah i think that's kind of an, an underlying issue with season two is that at a certain point yeah the writers are just kind of left with all of this and d- don't really can't really do anything with it other than yeah trying trying to structure something around yeah. it well <laughs> yeah so i've uh i've looked up next episode because i was going to give you know a, a little teaser we're always sort of stuck we're always saying, uh, join us for the next one, but we don't know what it's called. So, 
are we are we through the spoilers? Have we yeah gone through one one end of the Black Lodge and come out the other? Yeah, I think so. All right, so I guess like general in, uh, wrap up. Yeah, summation. Spoilers done. Eh. You know. Eh. <laughs> yeah, it's um. There's not. I didn't feel like there was a ton to talk about with this episode. It just sort of things just sort of happen. And yeah, it's my only episode where I had less than two pages of notes. I don't know. I I can't quite put my finger on it, but something about this felt kind of off, and it wasn't bad. There were some good moments. It was fine. I didn't dislike it really. The 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 parts at the end. Um, I really like the scenes with Major Briggs. I really like mm-hmm. that scene with him and Cooper. I think those are really good. I like the ending. A lot of the other characters' scenes did yeah feel kind of a little bit phoned in. Yeah. No, I thought uh. What what stuff here that connects sort of more directly back to the previous episode is is pretty good, and I enjoy the ending stuff as well. But I, uh, it's a downgrade. I mean, the previous one was so 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 good, and unfortunately, this is it's just not as interesting. It's not it's not as well written, and yeah, yeah and you know, I don't know that I would have noticed it as much had the previous episode not been so good. It would also you know it's uh, not that much. Like, we get other stories kind of rolling, but it doesn't feel like... Nothing much happens. Particularly much is going on, so... Yeah. Yeah. So, hopefully for a uh, slightly more energized episode three, we'll be reviewing The Man Behind Glass. <laughs> really? What's the title? That's what it says. The Man Behind a picture... Glass. Yeah, well, I tried to put in a the, but there's no, there's no actual the in the title, so... Weird. There is a picture of there is a picture of uh, Dick Tremaine in the thumbnail. So, <laughs> oh good, Woo! I can share my uh, my embarrassing uh, Dick Tremaine fact. <gasps> Did you have a crush on Dick Tremaine? No, I've told you this. Oh, okay, that no. save, I... it for, save it wait, sh- save it for the listeners. Okay, I'll remind you what it is after we finish recording. All right. Well, you'll also get to find out the uh, the last name of Blackie. Oh, hey, yeah. good, nice. Yeah. All right, well, uh, in the meantime, follow us on Twitter. We're at Northern Live Pod. Email us at livefromthegreatnorthern at gmail.com. Thanks, I didn't have that. Yeah, <laughs> and make sure you're subscribed on your preferred podcast app. Leave a review on iTunes. Yeah. Nobody uses iTunes anymore, but that's the only place you can leave reviews, so do that there. Or just email us a review that says you liked us a lot. Yeah, we'll, we'll read it on air. I should check yeah. our Gmail. I haven't in months. <laughs> Honestly, I'm saying it right now. We will we will just write us something to plug, and we'll plug you like a paid advertisement for free. Will We're we? just that desperate. No, right. probably not. But I was hoping we could bait them into uh, to some communications. I guess not anymore. No, <laughs> probably not. We will see you next week or the week after, depending on how we decide to release these. It'll We're, be, yeah doing a new recording schedule so yeah the only thing in our um gmail is just like settings notifications from apple podcast and an alert from twitter that kyle mclaughlin tweeted exactly this must have been a retweet but i can't see what it is so that's the (laughs) only thing in our gmail Well, with that riveting discussion of the contents of our empty mailbox, uh, we are signing off. Send us we have emails. To go, yeah, we, well, we have to go clear off our servers because, uh, as we mentioned before, a lot of our guest data has been overwritten. So, 
next couple hours are going to be quite a bit of IT work. So thanks for listening. Bye.